Welcome to the Lawrence Steinberg Wealth Management Audiocast, where we cover market updates and provide commentary during this difficult time, specifically for you, the client. We speak to our firm's philosophy, our criteria, our strategies, and how we're approaching today's market environment. And by the end of the discussion, we hope you have a stronger sense of clarity and confidence surrounding how we're positioned and are leading through these unprecedented times. Welcome back. I'm Liam Card, Senior Vice President here at Steinberg Wealth. And today we're going to discuss our global value equity strategy and the third quarter of the year in the global equity markets and going forward. So Q3 saw markets continue to rebound off the March lows, despite second quarter GDP and consumer spending numbers contracting in a serious way, both in North America and abroad. The past quarter saw the US Federal Reserve indicate that interest rates would be kept lower for longer. Apple touched the $2 trillion market cap mark And the month of September showed not only the return of some volatility, but also the signs of a rotation out of mega cap tech and back into some value names, something we're going to discuss in detail here today. So let's get started. With me is Lauren Steinberg, president here at LSWM and Martin Cobb, senior vice president equities. Lauren, let's start with you. How did the key highlights of Q3 impact investors? Oh, well, Liam, certainly, as we all know, the market continued, certainly through July and August. And despite the decline in September, it was still a pretty solid quarter. Looking forward, that you know, there's still an increasing realization, I would say, that COVID is not going away necessarily as fast as a lot of investors had thought. But the governments continue to pump a lot of liquidity into the markets, both from, both from central banks and uh, in terms of government spending, and we have little doubt that in the U.S., uh, a deal will get cut between the White House and Congress to keep uh, Americans flush with cash. But ultimately, what is really driving the markets in the third quarter and, and going forward at present is the fact that interest rates remain at these record low levels, with investment-grade bonds really yielding less than 1%. All investors, be they individual investors or institutional investors, really have little option but to seek other asset classes, such as stocks, uh, in order to pick up some yield in order to survive. And Martin, there have been a lot of changes in the global value portfolio in 2020. How's the portfolio better positioned to deal with the future You know, today versus, say, a year ago? Uh, sure, Liam. Maybe just stepping back to begin with. A lot of investors try to predict the future. They do their due diligence, they do their intensive analysis in an effort to try and get the crystal ball and therefore bet on the future they believe is going to happen. We don't do that. We recognise that the future is inherently unknowable, uh, that there are risks will abound, there are things that we can't see, even if the things we can see, they may be quite different going forward. So we take a view that we need to have a properly and adequately diversified portfolio so whatever comes down the pipe, we are robustly positioned. I like to think of the portfolio as having competition for capital. What I mean by that is every day, every stock that's in the portfolio is basically justifying its continued inclusion in the portfolio, like a blank sheet of paper approach. Now, what happened in the first half of 2020, a period of elevated turnover, is we saw the return of Mr. Market. Mr. Market was a character coined by Benjamin Graham in The Intelligent Investor, a book published first in 1949. Mr. Market is a manic depressive. Sometimes he's very optimistic. He turns up at your doorstep and offers you high prices for anything you might own. Sometimes he's very, very down in the dumps and he'll sell you anything at any price that you're willing to pay. 
We saw Mr. Market appear in the first quarter and the second quarter of 2020. And that provided us with great opportunity when he was depressed in February, March to pick up a number of stocks. And when he was a bit more ebullient in May and June to sell him a number of stocks. The net result of all that is we've been able to significantly increase the quality of the portfolio that we have, but pay roughly the same price. Now, it's early days, and I don't want to read too much into one month's performance. But what was interesting, in July and in August, as Lauren said, markets continued to push on. And our global equity strategies continued to do well also during those first two months of the quarter. But what was really encouraging is that in the month of September, when markets sold off, our global equity portfolios continued to go up in value. Yes, it's only one month. It's a good indication, an early indication, that the portfolios are much better positioned today, regardless of what happens in the months and years ahead. And Martin, we had some activity in Q3. Perhaps you could speak to some of that, what we bought and why. Sure, much more muted activity in the third quarter than we saw in the first couple of quarters of the year for the reasons I've just mentioned. I would typically expect us to have about one new stock coming in each month and one new stock exiting the portfolio. That'd be pretty typical. We were at even less than that uh, during the, the third quarter of 2020. We only added two new names to the portfolio, one that would be pretty familiar to all and one I suspect won't be so familiar uh, with all our listeners. The more familiar one was Intel. Intel, the inventor of the microprocessor, they actually invented it in the year I was born, 1970. Today, one of the leading chip designers and manufacturers. But they've had a bit of a problem, a problem with their manufacturing. They still are seen to design some of the best chips in the world, but they're struggling to make them. Either they fix the manufacturing, and that's good, we're happy, or they have to outsource the manufacturing to a fabricator like a Taiwan semiconductor. Now, that would mean a reduction in profitability for Intel if they had to get someone else to make the chips, but not in terms of their cash flow, because they'd stop spending money on CapEx, they'd stop spending money on R&D for manufacturing. They'd actually become much more free cash flow positive. So we like Intel trading on a very attractive valuation. Less familiar, but a much older business is Johnson Matthey. Johnson Matthey is over 200 years old. It's morphed over the last couple of centuries, but today it's predominantly a catalytic converter company. So about a third of its profits come from that piece of equipment that sits in your exhaust, prevents the emissions coming out from being dirty, and it cleans them up. Now, we know that the internal combustion engine is going the way of the dodo sometime this century. But if you look at the rest of Johnson Matthey, you have catalysts for trucks. You have industrial catalysts for petrochemicals plants. You have active pharmaceutical ingredients. You even have an EV batteries business within there. There's much more to Johnson Matthey than Autocats. And it's our simplistic view that given the fears over the death of diesel, the death of the internal combustion engine, you're basically getting the rest of the business for free. So you're basically getting that AutoCAD business for nothing because the rest of the business justifies the current valuation. We don't know what's going to happen with internal combustion. It'll probably be around for a few more years yet, but we're not paying for it within the Johnson Matthey share price today. And Lauren, COVID second waves, an election in the US, a struggling global economy, you know, with the possibility of more volatility to come in the remaining months of 2020, what should investors be focusing on when it comes to their portfolio and how much cash is really enough? Well, Liam, I think uh, as my esteemed colleague Martin mentioned, to try and focus on the remaining months of 2020 or any short-term period is a waste of time. Who would have imagined in January what would happen to the markets in the world in March? And who would have imagined in April that we would have the rebound that we've seen? 
we really need to spend our time, whomever wins the U.S. election, we don't think is going to have any significant impact in the long term on the stock market. So what investors should really be focused on is looking at their portfolio, understanding what they own, and most importantly, understanding why they own them. What are the valuations? When we look at our portfolio in a market that is trading for probably around 25 times earnings, our portfolio is trading for around 13 times earnings, about half the valuation of the U.S. stock market. Because of that, our dividend yield is almost 3% in a market where the dividend yield is less than 2%. So when you think about it, Liam, when bonds are yielding less than 1%, For sure, we expect ongoing volatility, a very choppy market. We could see a 25% decline at the drop of a hat, but we've built a portfolio, which is not just trading cheaper than today's stock market, but which is actually trading at a lower valuation than the long-term historical metrics of stock markets. And so for us, looking forward over the next number of years, we have a portfolio of sustainable businesses whose earnings and dividends will be growing over time, and we actually own them at very attractive prices. Do we have some cash in the portfolio? We do, but it's more a function of we've trimmed a few positions that had done very well for us in the third quarter and looking for ways to deploy our cash into the same kinds of businesses at the same types of valuations that we own today. And Martin, often we get questions surrounding large cap, mid cap, or small cap stocks, and portfolio managers will comment on types of companies they hold within their strategies as large, mid, or small, sometimes very technical in nature. However, you know, it doesn't provide a lot of clarity with how these types of stocks add value. Can you share your approach as to how you categorize company types and your definition of value investing? Sure, Liam. Perhaps I'll take the, the second part of that question first in terms of our definition of value investing, because there's something I, I feel very passionately about. And it's this whole nonsense. There's two camps in which you can be in, value and growth. Whoever decided that? Consultants like to put investors into boxes and decided value would be over here and growth would be over there. It just doesn't make any sense to me. And it shouldn't make any sense to anyone. Surely the growth rate of a company is how you determine the value of a company. It's probably the most important way in terms of value companies, the future growth that that companies like to generate and therefore how you value it. So let's just put that argument to bed. doesn't make any sense. I would happily own growth companies across the board if I don't have to pay a high price for them and could pay a good enough price. And we own a number of secular growers. So to answer the second part of your question, I look at the companies across the geographies and across industries, but also in various buckets. And a chunk of our portfolio would be in secular growth stocks. Think of Microsoft. Think of a Tektronic, the power tools company. I also have a bucket I call Steady Eddies. These are the Unilevers of the world. They are never particularly high growth, but they're dependable growth. We have some number of Steady Eddies. Now, we have some growthy cyclicals. We have a number of companies where the profitability is definitely cyclical, but you look over time and through the cycles, the profitability rises over time. Think of American Express. Think of Kering, which is the Gucci and other fashion labels. Redro, the house builder. These three categories are typically better quality stocks than you would see in the rest of the market. And they're about two thirds of the portfolio today. I'd love to have more, but it's hard to find cheap ones today. We have some more classic cyclicals. Think of the banks like an ING or an auto company like Topri that we own in Japan. And then I have a final catch-all bucket, an idiosyncratic one you might want to call it. A Johnson Matthew would be in there. A Discovery, the TV channel business would be in there. Something doesn't fit into the other buckets. But really it's trying to get a broad spectrum of companies across geographies, across industries, 
across different types of companies and getting them at a margin of safety. And of course, you mentioned some Japanese names in there, and we have some Japanese names in the portfolio where we see some tremendous value. Warren Buffett's entry into the Japanese market definitely had a lot of investors talking. What does that do, if anything, for the case to be made that there's some value in Japan today? Yes, it certainly had a number of investors talking and quite a few column inches have been spent on trying to understand why he did what he did. Just to give a little bit of background, he's basically bought a 5% position in five separate Japanese trading companies. Trading companies are really unique to Japan. They're huge companies. They've changed over time, but they're really, you know, their core business is middlemen, trading companies, buying and matching buyers and sellers. Why is it interesting that Warren Buffett decided to take positions in these companies? I think it's, it's interesting for a number of reasons. It's his largest in aggregate. It's his largest investment outside the US ever. So that's interesting. Warren Buffett talks a lot about his circle of competence, investing in companies that you know. I'm not sure that really applies here. These are not simple businesses. He's purchased them, which is quite interesting. And I think thirdly, if anything, you could argue it's not really a stock play. It's more of a macro play. You know, he's taking a view that, you know, Japan, the Japanese economy, a reflationary environment is going to take place. It's going to be good for these companies. Again, not something you see typical for Warren Buffett. So my greatest takeaway personally from that is it's evidence that the maestro is struggling to find value in his home market of the US. And indeed, he recognizes there's better value elsewhere. And on that note, I'm sure he would be glad. Uh, I wholeheartedly agree. We have had the luxury of being global, going anywhere in the world, and we are finding opportunities in Japan. You know, we have roughly 16, 17% position in Japan, more than twice as much as the market. But other parts of Asia are also represented in the portfolio. And then there's parts of Europe. Increasingly, Europe is an area where there's some world-leading companies. They're maybe not the household names. They're maybe not familiar to our listeners, but there's some great businesses trading at big discounts to what they would be trading with if they were trading in the US. Lauren, the FANG names, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, those names continue to drive the performance of the S&P 500 and certainly over Q3 as well. But the equal weighted S&P 500 tells a very different story. Maybe you could touch on market cap weighting and how much that can affect an index. Uh, Liam, you sure. I mean, the S&P 500 is what we call a market cap weighted index, unlike the Dow Jones. And in a market cap weighted index, a larger company counts for a much higher weighting than a much smaller company. So as an example, the S&P 500, which has 500 companies, the top 50 companies make up the overwhelming amount percentage of that index. So what happens is the stocks you mentioned, including the Microsoft that we own, end up accounting for such a large part of the market that if that particular sector keeps on going up and those stocks keep on getting more expensive, we read that the S&P 500 went up, even if a large chunk of the rest of the 500 stocks in that index went down. And so on an equal weighted basis, if we looked at all of those 500 stocks being equally weighted, the index has actually declined this year, which tells you that most of the companies in the S&P 500 have had a negative performance. And so intuitively, any investor can appreciate that over the long haul, we are going to make more money buying that where there is better value, which has not had the big run-up, as opposed to those stocks which have already done well. And that is where we need to focus our energies because that is what's going to deliver our returns over the next several years. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, just as we start to wrap up, Martin, any final thoughts? 
We are here towards the end of 2020, facing an apparent dichotomy, which Lon's already touched on, between Main Street and Wall Street. In Main Street, every man, every woman, ourselves included, are experiencing the most unusual of times. You're seeing job losses, you're seeing GDP contractions uh, on an epic scale. But then you look at Wall Street, you know, how the stock market and what it's discounting, it's close in some cases to all-time highs, you know, is, is probably discounting a significant profits recovery sooner rather than later. There are lots of commentators out there, they get on CNBC or BNN, and they some argue that the market is due for a tumble. Other commentators, who are just as credible, uh, argue that they just don't get it, and that the TINA, there is no alternative uh, to equities, and then they should continue to power on, is valid. I don't know who is right, uh, only time will tell. But what I will say, with maybe 10,000 stocks, several thousand stocks in the world to choose from, there are always opportunities. As I said earlier, they may not be familiar, they may not be household names, but I'm excited about the opportunities that markets continue to throw up, and my job is to go out and find them. Lauren, any final thoughts? No, I think Martin has summed it up very well, that this is all about finding value. And I have to say, when investors talk about the market being cheap or expensive, they're talking about an artificial level of a whole bunch of stocks. What they should be focusing on at any time, there are some stocks within the market that may be very pricey and too expensive, offering no value. And there may be other stocks which have not done well, which may be great businesses, which offer compelling value. And I have to say, as Martin said, we start every day with a blank sheet of paper and ask ourselves, do we want to own every single stock with the weighting we have in our portfolio? And if the answer is no, something's too expensive, we need to trim it or sell it. Thanks to both of you for the uh, discussion and commentary today. And I welcome anyone who has any questions to please reach out to us. Our contact info is on our website, www.steinbergwealth.com. And we'll look forward to answering any questions. Please join us next time when we'll discuss our Canadian Dividend Growth Fund, some key updates there, and a few frequently asked questions about the Canadian markets.